If you'd like to turn to John chapter 14 in your Bible. Um, I think most know this, but for those who don't, June and Ruby have actually returned to Sista Park. Um, you might have seen them outside holding court. Um, and I know it means a lot to them to be back home. And uh, yeah, please keep them, continue to keep them in your prayers. Um, also, I had a chance this week to have lunch with Don Stout, missionary. We support him and his family out of France. They're in town, or they're in Illinois, in the Monticello area, for about three weeks. So they're not going to have a chance to come up here during this visit. Uh, but wanted to have a chance to visit with Don, and he wanted to send uh, their best wishes and, and gratitude for this church. Um, and speaking of gratitude, I'd certainly would like to reiterate what Doug said earlier and thank everybody who volunteered. Uh, either through um, leading classes or helping in the kitchen or baking cookies, everybody who helped out with VBS a couple of weeks ago. Um, and just, I, I thought everything went, went off so well with that and so thankful for that. And again, just really appreciate everybody who helped out. It really is a church-wide effort when we do VBS. And uh, she's not here this morning, but especially would like to thank Abby Faber and her work of, of organizing that. Again, John chapter 14 is where we'll be this morning. And we'll be looking at verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Look, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the chance to come to you in a time of worship and studying your word and praising your great name and remembering the goodness of your gospel. Lord, we pray for Ron Preston, Debbie's uncle who passed away this week, and for their family, Lord, on the tough loss of a loved one. And we pray for your nearness to them, Lord, as they mourn and grieve his passing. Lord, we also pray for the Sims family on the loss of Denise this week. That was such a sudden and crushing loss for this family, Lord. And we too pray for you to be with them, Lord, as people who suffer and who grieve, Lord, we pray that you would be near to the brokenhearted. Lord, we continue to pray for crew Videka, Lord, and 
the road that he has ahead of him. Lord, we pray for the treatment that he's receiving. We pray for his recovery. Lord, we pray for his parents in what is, I'm sure, an unimaginably difficult situation. We pray for your nearness to them, Lord, in this time. And for the whole family that they come together and support one another, Lord. And for your, just to bless them and to be with them. But again, especially we pray for crew and for his recovery and healing. Once again, Lord, we pray for our time in your word this morning. And they would bless this time. And that we would be pointed to the truth of the goodness of the grace of the gospel of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapters 13 through 17 is a section of John's gospel, which all revolves around the last night of Jesus' life. And it's heavily focused on Jesus talking to the disciples. It's a section that scholars oftentimes refer to as the farewell discourse. In John chapter 13, we saw Jesus wash the feet of his disciples. We saw Judas depart in order to betray Jesus. We saw Jesus give the disciples the command to love one another. And we saw him predict Peter's betrayal. In John chapter 15, Jesus will talk of being the vine and the necessity of life in him and the persecution that his followers will face. In John chapter 16, Jesus will talk of the work of the Holy Spirit and the joy which will ultimately come after the tremendous sorrow of losing Jesus. John 17 is the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for his disciples. But in the midst of all of that, we have John 14. John 14 is kind of like the last will and testament of the ministry of Jesus. All throughout this chapter, Jesus has been talking about what will happen when he's gone. And we spend a lot of time in this chapter. This is our seventh Sunday in John 14. The only other chapter in John's gospel where we spent this much time was John chapter 6, which is 40 verses longer than John 14. And looking forward to what comes next in John's gospel, I don't think that we're going to spend this much time in any other chapter for the rest of this book. And so we're looking at this last section of this passage this morning, but I also think it's important to recap the entire chapter. And the point today is not to uncover every stone within this passage, but to point out how broad the scope is within John chapter 14. Again, John 14 is like the last will and testament of Jesus' earthly ministry. A last will and testament is a legal document where a person specifies their final wishes regarding their assets and specifies how they wish to provide for family members or friends or pets or other organizations. Most standard in a will is what a person gives to their spouse or children. Millionaires have left, left vast fortunes to families, endowed scholarships to universities, donated to various philanthropic endeavors. People have given money to churches and charities and communities. People have used their wills to bless loved ones. Some have used their wills to take a final jab at people and their families. When the hotel heiress Leona Helmsley died in 2007, she entirely, she was a billionaire, she entirely cut out two of her grandchildren. For the remaining grandchildren, 
Their inheritance was to be paid out in installments contingent upon them making regular visits to their father's grave. And in the midst of all of that, she left $12 million to her dog, a Maltese named Trouble. I read a story about a man in Michigan who died in 1919. He had made millions of dollars in lumber and iron and willed that none of the proceeds would go to his descendants until 21 years after the death of his last surviving grandchild. She died in 1989. More than $100 million was dispersed among his great-grandchildren beginning in 2010. I'll pause for just a second. I would not want to be the last surviving grandchild on a $100 million estate where... When the comedian Jack Benny died in 1974, he had made a provision in his will that his widow was to receive a single long-stemmed rose every day for the rest of her life. She outlived him by more than nine years and received over 3,000 roses. In John 14, we see the caring provision that Jesus made for his disciples and ultimately for his church. And as with a last will and testament, what needed to happen for the beneficiaries to receive the estate was for the testator to pass away. One of the people sitting at the Last Supper as Jesus talked about these things was the Apostle Peter. Towards the beginning of Peter's first epistle, he too talks about the inheritance which all believers have through following Christ. 1 Peter 1 verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We have a great Lord who has well provided for his people and a world without him. And all throughout this 14th chapter, we've seen the things that Jesus has for us. And so as we get into chapter 14 this morning, before we get into this final section, I wanted to do a brief survey of what we've covered so far in this passage. Again, we've already spent six weeks in chapter 14, and when we've gotten into so much depth, sometimes I think it's, it's helpful to just get a broad picture of the entire section. Jesus, at the beginning of this passage, talked about preparing a place for his followers. John chapter 14, verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In this chapter, Jesus has talked about how he will return. John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Obviously, Jesus returned at his resurrection. And because he is risen and returned, we have confidence that Christ will again return at the end of the age, just as he has promised. Jesus promises that he is the way to God in verse 6. Where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus will talk of how he reveals the Father to the world. Verses 9 and 10. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. 
In verse 12, Jesus is pointing to the time after he's gone and talks of the greater works which will be done in his name. That his followers will go into the world and have a global ministry for good and spreading the gospel of Christ and sharing the love of Christ and making disciples of Christ. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Verses 13 and 14, Jesus will talk of a direct line of communication that we have with God and what is accomplished through praying in Christ's name. Because Jesus has died and rose for our sins, we are enabled to come and pray in his glorious and powerful name. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In verse 16, Jesus talks about giving the Holy Spirit the helper to his disciples. And that matters because it is through the Holy Spirit that we are equipped with spiritual gifts, born again, and sanctified to God. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. We'll have more to say in the Holy Spirit as we get further into this passage. John 14, 18, Jesus says he will not leave us as orphans. That's true because he will return, and it's also true because of the Spirit. And it's also true because through Christ and through the work of the Spirit, the Bible says that we are adopted as God's children. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15 says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Jesus promises life because he himself is life. Verse 19, because I live, you also will live. Again, we spent weeks looking at this all piece by piece. But when you really look at this in quick, rapid-fire succession, there's a lot there. Imagine being one of the disciples at the Last Supper, hearing all of this. It would have been overwhelming, like drinking from a fire hose. And the last thing that Jesus says before we come to our passage this morning, verse 21, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now when Jesus says he will manifest himself to the person who loves him and keeps his commands, that again has a double meaning. For the disciples, it's true in the sense that he will manifest himself to them, that they will literally see the risen Christ after his resurrection. And we too will, ultimately, but for the disciples and for us, it's also true that through the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus reveals himself and his goodness and glory to his followers. And with all of that background, we come to the final section of John 14. And there are four places where we're going to stop along the way in this passage, beginning with the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, 
but the fathers who sent me. The apostle Judas asks Jesus a question. And the gospel is immediate to point out that this is not the same Judas who betrayed Jesus. Judas is actually a somewhat common name in this time and place. I assume it probably became drastically less common in the early church. Kind of like how after World War II, the name Adolf really just fell off the table in popularity. But even in the New Testament, the book of Jude, in the Greek, that name is Judas. Um, So yeah, it was a fairly common name. A couple disciples with that name, a brother of Jesus with that name. At least three people named Judas in the New Testament alone. And so we have this other person named Judas. Now, names can be complicated both then and now. Sometimes people have nicknames or go by other names. And this time, sometimes a person's name would be associated with where they were from. The Judas that John is referring to is most likely the person that the other Gospels refer to as Thaddeus. And this person begins by asking Jesus how he will manifest himself, how he will reveal himself to his followers and not to the whole world. And again, that's a direct response to what Jesus had just said in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Touched on this a moment ago, but Jesus does this through his return and through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. When we were in this passage a couple weeks ago, our focus was more on his return. But as Jesus gives an answer in verse 23, the emphasis is more on the latter, on the Holy Spirit. Jesus will manifest himself, his truth, his gospel, the life that is in him through the Spirit. When Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, it's the third time in John 14 where Jesus has talked about obedience to him and keeping his word. And in answering, he says that Jesus and his father will love the person who keeps his word and make their home with them. Now, there's some nuance there. I think it's really a beautiful thing that he's saying, but it it takes a second. In verse 16, Jesus had talked about giving a helper, an advocate, a counselor to his disciples, referring to the Spirit. But in verse 23, Jesus is saying that it is he and his Father who will make a home in a person. So think of it as like this progression of thought. Jesus is giving further elaboration on the spiritual dimension of how it is that he will provide for his disciples. In verse 26, Jesus will specify that the helper he's referring to is the Holy Spirit. So he is giving the helper, the Spirit. But the Father and the Son will make a home in a person who loves Jesus and keeps his word. Again, that's saying a lot. It's a very rich idea. It's a very hyper-Trinitarian idea. 
and the ways in which the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all working together. And it is because we have a triune God that the Spirit who indwells a Christian can be mentioned in conversation with the Father and the Son making a home inside a person. It is ultimately the Spirit who indwells. It is the Spirit who is in us when we believe. Which is why it is necessary that the Holy Spirit has all of the divine attributes. Because anything less would be inadequate. Anything else could not sanctify nor sanctify perfectly. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. But the Father and the Son and the Spirit all work together to make the dead alive. The Spirit brings the presence and experience of the Father and the Son into our lives. And it is by the Spirit that Christ is manifested to us, that Christ is revealed to us. It is by the Spirit that we have eyes to see and ears to hear. And that is a glorious privilege that all Christians share in. That it is the same Holy Spirit who indwelled the disciples to whom Jesus was speaking at this Last Supper. The same Spirit who indwelled the Apostle Paul. The same Spirit who has empowered Christians from the times of Rome all throughout the world to today. The same spirit that C.S. Lewis and Billy Graham had. And it's the same spirit who indwells people in tens of thousands of churches who right now are worshiping. People in every corner of the globe. The same spirit is at work in us. That there's no elitism or discrimination. That we have one spirit into which we are all sealed to Christ and enjoy spiritual blessings. Borrowing an idea from Colin Cruz in his commentary on John. This promise applies to all believers and everyone who has placed their hope and trust in the gospel. Cruz again says that when Jesus says that they will make our home in us, that the Father and the Son will make our home, their home in us, that the word for home in the Greek is the same word that Jesus used earlier in this chapter... When he said, in my father's house, there are many rooms, which is talking about heaven. So we look with hopeful expectation to the place that Jesus has prepared for us with many rooms. But while we wait, the father and the son and the spirit have made a room in our hearts. Where today we can live with God on earth as it is in heaven. Here and now, God has a home in our hearts of everyone who believes in him. And as we continue, we see one of the reasons for that. And that's the first point of this passage as we consider the four things that Jesus has left for us in his last will and testament. The Holy Spirit. Second thing, the word. Jesus is speaking in verse 25. He will again point to his departure when he says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit... Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus is saying things while there's still time. Because he knows where he's going. He knows what lies ahead. As we said a few moments ago, 
Jesus talks of the Holy Spirit that he will give to his followers. It's only the second time in this gospel where the term Holy Spirit has been used. The Spirit is holy. Again, the Spirit has all the attributes of God. The Spirit is not a force. It's a person. The Spirit is not created. He's eternal. And in this passage, Jesus is saying that the Spirit will teach the things that Christ has said. Where he says in verse 29, I'm sorry, 25, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. What does that mean? When Jesus says to his disciples that the Spirit will teach all things and bring to remembrance all that he has said, he's referring to the witness of the disciples in the writing of the New Testament. All throughout the Gospels, the disciples are not really the sharpest group, not always very buttoned up. We see how often they get it wrong and misunderstand who Jesus is and what he says. We see their ignorance at times. We see their vanity, such as when they ask a couple disciples asked to sit at Jesus' side. We see at times letting Jesus down. Peter's betrayal, disciples falling asleep. They often miss the point. But these are the people who wrote the New Testament. And were the first ones to spread the good news of the gospel throughout the world. For these disciples who lived with Jesus, who heard Jesus, saw Jesus, beheld the risen Jesus... The Spirit would endow them with the ability to recount the word of God. Like Moses and the prophets of the Old Testament who were entrusted entrusted to communicate the words of God, the disciples too would communicate the greatest revelation of God to the world. The word, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospels are not simply four eyewitness accounts. The secular world likes to treat the Gospels like they're just that. Just four accounts of some person who lived a long time ago. But they're more than that. It is the Spirit breathed in perfect word of God to the world. It is because of that work that we have our Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. Either directly through the disciples, the twelve. Through people who were close associates of the disciples. Or for Paul who was personally called to be an apostle. And it is because it is the work of the Spirit and preserving the Word of God that we can trust the New Testament and the Gospels. The theories are not just for opinions of men, that it is the Word of God itself. For the disciples, it meant that the Spirit would point the disciples to the truths of the Gospel and the ministry of Christ, which were most necessary to be communicated. And this is also the reason why the scriptures must trump everything. There is no new revelation about Jesus today. That we have the Bible and that the scripture is sufficient. That it is what the Holy Spirit has perfectly revealed about Jesus to the disciples. And which has been passed on and given to us for our edification and for the communication of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18 to 22 says, Through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you were no longer strangers and aliens, but you were fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It is through the Spirit that we have the Word and that the church is maintained. Jesus did not write his own autobiography. But in the early church, it was those closest to him who spread his message. So don't take verse 26 to mean that the Spirit teaches all of us individually. I think that there are other places that say that in the New Testament. But in this specific instance, I take all of this as referring to the disciples and what the Spirit would teach them. And from them, the revelation which would ultimately be passed to us through the word of God. That is how we have the Bible. Jesus gives us the Spirit. He gives us the word. Third thing, Jesus gives us peace. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In my reading this week, I saw several commentators who brought up the idea of, um, known as the Pax Romana, basically the time of peace in the Roman Empire. And the Roman idea of peace was to be kept through having power. And I think that's oftentimes true in America today. And I'm not saying that as a good or a bad thing. It's not really meant to be a political statement, but I think that there's a lot of truth to that. That there's this idea of peace by strength. But that's not what Jesus is talking about when he talks about giving true peace. As Jesus says, he brings peace, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Because the world cannot give ultimate peace. There are all sorts of things that we can look to to get a sense of peace and security. A certain political party being in power. Money, to name a couple. Those things can't give true peace. A person can have all the money in the world. I've been going through a biography of John D. Rockefeller. Adjusted by inflation, in today's dollars, Rockefeller was worth about $400 billion. He still died. Money can give you many things, but it can't give you eternal life, and it can't give you eternal peace. Jesus gives a heavenly peace. Jesus gives peace between people who were hostile to God with God. Yes, that's part of it. But here the idea of peace has more to do with an inward peace in spite of the turmoil of the world that's around us. In Psalm 4, in the midst of chaos, David looks at being able to get a good night's sleep because he has true peace with God. Psalm 4, 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Fox's Book of Martyrs tells a story about a 16th century English martyr named Nicholas Ridley. And it's reported that on the night before he died, his brother offered to stay with him. To which Ripley replied, I intend to go to bed and sleep as quietly tonight as I ever did. In Galatians, Paul, in Galatians 5, Paul talks about peace as a fruit of the Spirit. In Philippians 4, 7, Paul will talk about peace that surpasses understanding. 
Peace in the Old Testament is a sign of the Messianic age. And Jesus says that he has brought peace to the world. He offers a peace that the world cannot give. Do we feel perfect peace? I highly doubt that we always do. Some of the greatest thinkers and Christian leaders the world has ever seen wrote extensively about their own struggles. So my point is not that we should act stoic and act like we're just always unshakable, but to lean into Christ, to trust in Christ, to be honest with our struggles, but to know the peace that Jesus has meant to give us. I think churches sometimes need to find balance. That yes, there are spiritual struggles and that we should support and encourage people who are going through dark times. And this mentality that it's okay to not be okay. But in the midst of all of that, we can't lose sight of the precious truth that Jesus has come to give peace. Again, that's not a judgment for anybody who's struggling today. But we have a Savior who is the way and the truth and the life. He came to give peace in the world where there's so much turmoil. He is meant to be our true hope and our true peace. Perhaps part of the reason why we so often lack peace is that we often get too caught up in a worldly perspective of what peace ought to look like. I think Bruce Barton is helpful in the Life Application Study Bible Commentary of John, paraphrasing ideas that he talks about. The world's peace is meant to give us a sense of security in ourselves, in, in this life. Jesus is meant to give us peace in him and knowing his gospel and who he is and walking with him. The world often likes to think that peace should bring ease. The Bible points to having peace that God will provide what we ultimately need. But it gives no such promise that things will be easy. But through the difficulties that we will have God. The world likes to paint peace as the absence of conflict. And ultimately, that is the future hope that we have in Christ. In the perfected state. It is the hope we have today and that we have peace with God. But in a world that is sinful and that opposes God, in spite of conflict, Jesus invites us to remember that we are his and have our peace in that, that we have a great Savior. The world likes to look at a certain set of circumstances for our security. Jesus invites us to be secure in him. And the peace that Christ offers is another example of his care and grace for us. The spirit, the word, and peace. Those first three points are all pretty straightforward. This fourth point I'm looking at is a, kind of an application that's really a summary of this entire section of John. Verse 28, Jesus talks of why it is important that he is leaving. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. 
All of it matters in the divine plan. It matters because Jesus is returning into the presence of his Father and in the process is preparing a place for us in mediating between God and us in his glorified state. It is only because he has been glorified that he can bring us to the Father. Verse 29, Jesus says, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. It is an act of grace that Jesus has shared the things that he has shared. That it will be a blessing and a tremendous, tremendously edifying moment for the disciples when they have a front row seat to the fulfillment of the things that Jesus has said. But we too are given glimpses of the things that God has planned for the future. And it should be an encouragement to our heart to see things from the Old Testament fulfilled in Christ. To see the way in which the Bible works together. The perfection of the unity of this book of 66 books. Written by authors, different centuries, different languages, different cultures. And this unity that's within God's word. That God is in control of it all. And at the end of this passage, we're pointing to the plan and providence of God. Again, Jesus has prepared the disciples for his departure, told them what would happen, what the aftermath would be, what they would experience, because all of it is part of the divine plan. Jesus was on the verge of enduring the greatest evil the world has ever seen, the killing of its own Savior, the sinless Son of God. It was was all part of the plan. And all of the blessings that Christ gives are part of the divine plan. And at the end of this chapter, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. That an act of great evil was on the horizon. And when Jesus says the ruler of this world, obviously he's referring to the devil, who he says has no claim on him. When Jesus went to the cross, the devil did not get a win. He didn't go to the cross because the devil pulled a fast one on God. He went to the cross because it was the divine plan. Quoting John Piper, I want you to know, Jesus says, and I want the world to know that the the demonic betraying and demonic denying and demonic lying are not ruling this night. Love is ruling this night. I am obeying the Father so that the world may know that I love the Father. I'm not controlled by the lies of false witnesses. I'm controlled by love for my Father. The cross was not at root the coercion of evil. It was the compliance of love. The roots of the cross reach back before creation into the eternal Godhead where the God, the Son, has always infinitely loved God the Father. I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. There are so many evils that we see in the world today. Horrible stories of exploding murder rates, 
increasing violence, all of the geopolitical tensions in the world. So many things that we see where it can be tempting to get swept up in that and lose your joy. But in the midst of all of that, we must remember that the same God who is working through the ministry of Jesus is at work today. That God is in control. The world is sinful. But God is working through that to achieve his purposes. Things can appear random and senseless. But that our God is in control. God worked something as evil as the cross for a glorious purpose. The world is not out of control. It's not random. That God is working. And in a frightening world, on on the night before he was to go to the cross, Jesus sought to comfort his followers with words that have since strengthened the church for centuries. When he reminded them of the place that he was preparing for us, the life that we have in him, the spirit he gives us, the teaching he would leave us, the peace he would give to us. And he reminds us at the end of the God who is over all of it. And it is that God whom he invites us to know. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we again rejoice at the goodness of your gospel. Lord, there is so much sin and turmoil in the world. But let us know that we have a hope and a peace that is above all of that. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross. Out of love for you and your plan. And that in that so we could be forgiven and redeemed. And let us rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen.